please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. That can be found on page 554 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of those Bibles home as our gift to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Greeks both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's word. Well, let's pray together. Father, we come together, we've gathered together, And we now turn our attention to the great gift of your word, your perfect revelation to us of your will, of your heart, of your ways. And God, we pray that you would take this powerful dynamo that is the word of God and that you would penetrate deeply into the the deepest recesses of our hearts, both conscious and subconscious that you would you would begin as the bible says to separate us soul and spirit joints and marrow god that you would go deep and you would you would search us out lord and that you would show us god the beauty of your ways god the perfection of your ways and that we as your children we as those who are following you we who are being sanctified day by day would delight in hearing the word of the Lord, and that our lives would would be changed because we've heard it, because we've applied it, because we've obediently submitted to it, God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see all the joy that comes from that, all the benefit that comes from that. And, Lord, we pray that, as we prayed at the beginning, that as we said that our worship would be pleasing to you, now we pray that our attentiveness to what you have said will be pleasing to you. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So, so good to have you here this morning. I appreciate you guys being here. I mentioned this last week, but this is the second part of a two-week break that we're taking from our study in Mark. And and so I want to encourage you, if you didn't hear the first part, um, that's available online. Cameron, is is it uploaded on the website yet? The, the last week's message? 
Okay, so yeah, so you can go to the website or you can go to our Facebook page. You can watch a video on Facebook and, and the message. Just because it will put in context some things that I don't have time to restate today. So um, so I think that would be helpful. Before I begin, I said this last week, I just want to mention you, we have so many new faces. And we're so grateful for that. So we, I met some folks that were here for the first time this morning. And But if you're new here and, and God is connecting your heart and you would like to be go a little bit deeper, we are about to start a new new members class and that will start it'll it'll take place the last week of March and the first week of April and what this is it doesn't make you a member it just gives you all the information you need to make that um, decision and so we would love to have you the only thing I ask of you is there are some resources I need to get into your hands so if you would let me or my wife Ginger know today that you're going to be joining us um, that would be fantastic so if you would kind of put that in your to-do list um, we would love to have you and I think and, and share that information with you So as I said last week, we began a series, and the series was designed to discuss the biblical grounds for everything that we have included in our liturgy. Now, as I said last week, that word might not mean a lot to you, but a liturgy is just the way churches, individual churches, order their services. It it refers to the elements of a particular church's worship gatherings. And we discovered in in our talk last week that every single church on the planet, no matter what their theology, no matter what their denomination, no matter what their tradition, everyone has a liturgy of some kind. Um... And we considered the different bases churches use to formulate a liturgy. They, they either do it one of two ways, either on preferences that aren't clearly prohibited in the scripture. This is called the normative principle. Or they do it by including only the elements that God commands in the Bible as pleasing to him in worship. This is called the regulative principle. Well, Northridge Life Church adheres to the regulative principle, to the very best of our understanding of the scriptures. And that simply means we exclude culturally appealing measures, culturally appealing methods that aren't specifically warranted in God's word. And we include those to the best of our ability that are. Now, this desire... We talked about this last week and going through our liturgy. This desire to be biblical led us to include the singing at the beginning of all our services of the Gloria Patri and to hear a scriptural call to worship and to sing doctrinally rich truths for the purpose of teaching and encouraging each other and setting the stage for everything that follows in the service. Now, to be clear, what I want to say is some of you who weren't here last week may be flipping violently through your Bible trying to find the scripture that says um, God commands that we sing the Gloria Patri. You will go from Genesis to Revelation, you will not find it. The reason we talked about last week that we do that, doesn't the regulative principle doesn't mandate that we sing specifically the Gloria Patri, but it does mandate that we affirm a steadfast Trinitarian doctrine. Amen? Would you agree with that? And that we, when we gather, we gather to ascribe glory to God. We do not gather for a therapeutic benefit. Now, although that's true, when we gather for the right reasons, there almost always seems to be a benefit to us in one way or the other. Have you found that to be true? So, also, 
when we look at the call to worship, there isn't a single script in the Bible that's given to us to call the congregation of the Lord to worship. Instead, there are many such scripts. They're called the Psalms. That's what they're given to us for, to call the congregation to worship. Um, it, 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 it's, it's clear from the regulated principle that what we were trying to make the point of last week is that there is a there is a, a expectation of that the Lord's people will be summoned by the Lord to come and worship him in spirit and in truth. Lastly, we are not given a list of songs that we have to sing in the Bible. But we are told clearly, in at least a couple of places, what types of songs we must sing. The Bible calls them psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that they should be sung for the purpose of exalting God for what he's done. They should not be sung for the purposes of entertaining people. They shouldn't be sung to um, to provide some, as I said, some therapeutic benefit or to get a response out of, out of a, a group of people. The regulative principle, therefore, is not liturgy in itself. When you ask a church what's their liturgy, they're not going to say, well, it's the regulative principle. Rather, the, the regulative principle ensures that our liturgies are biblical and that our liturgies are acceptable to God. They ensure that our gatherings please and do not offend God. Now, do you know, honest question, do you know scripturally that our gatherings can offend God? Did you know that? The, the, the greatest place for you to see this scripturally, we're not going to take time to look at it today, because your third version of homework. Go home, read Isaiah chapter 1, and you will find that God gives a whole list of things that he would, that, that the people think they're doing to bring honor to God, and God is offended by what they are doing. And so, it's a great place to look. And so, we do not want to offend him, do we? We don't want to offend him, do we? We want to please him. So, Let's jump right into it. Let's continue to examine our liturgy biblically. So today I want to talk about prayers, catechisms. I want to talk about preaching. I want to talk about the Lord's Supper and benediction. That's a lot. So we got to move fast. Um, so remember that what we're talking about when we talk about the regulative principle is that the scriptures alone, the written objective word of God, are the test for true God-honoring worship. It is never how we feel. It is never what the culture around us desires, demands, or craves. It is only what the scriptures give us. So first we want to look at here our public prayers. Now this may seem like overkill. I get it. There's very few people in any church that would question whether we have a biblical precedent to pray together. I hope you know that, that the Bible's okay with us praying together. We, we know that because Jesus, when he cleansed the temple, what did he say? He drove the money changers out and he said, my house shall be called what? A house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And God, we see by this, is pleased by the prayers of his corporate people. And this is why we must come to church ready to receive prayer. 
I, there was a lady, I won't, I won't pour her out because I don't want to embarrass her. She came into church this day, she said, my shoulder's hurting, will you pray for me when, when, before I leave? And I said, absolutely. So we got to come to church ready to receive prayer. We've got to come ready to be sensitive to what's going on around us so that we can pray for others. We've got to uh, be ready to actively participate in the public prayers and the co- corporate prayers of the congregation. Prayer, I say this all the time to you, prayer in church, in this moment, is never a, a, a moment for spectating, and it's also not a moment for performing. It's not for me to get up here and, and dazzle you with my eloquence, or Pastor David, or Gabriel, and it's also not a moment for you to just say, okay, as soon as we get done with this, we'll move to the next thing. You, we, we are doing this together. We are sharing in the ministry of the Word together. And so the Word of God both commands us And because it commands us, it expects us to pray. And it even tells us how and for what and and, and that we should pray together. It gives us some some guidelines for this. If you look at something as simple as 1 Corinthians 14, we're commanded that we are to pray intelligibly in the church and not in an unknown tongue, which sometimes only serves to display our wisdom or our spirituality that we think we have. But it fails to, this is Paul's point, it fails to communicate the gospel message to our thinking minds that can hear, understand, and receive the gospel. We are, um, we, more than all of that, we're told that we're to pray without ceasing. This is the way Colossians puts it. It says, continue steadfastly in prayer. You may think sometimes if you're new here, you may think, man, this church prays a lot in one service. Well, yes, because the Bible tells us to continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Jude tells us that we shouldn't just pray out of our own strength or intellect or, or, or you know, uh, uh, experience that we should pray in the spirit is what Jude tells us. James tells us he has a big list of stuff. He says, and this all happens, by the way, in about three verses in chapter five. He tells us that we're to pray in the midst of our suffering and the elders are to pray for us if we're sick. He tells us we're to confess our sins to each other. And most people know that he says that. But he says, pray for or confess your sins to one another and what? Pray for each other. And you know what he's what he tacks on the end of that? Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you may be healed. Healed of sickness, maybe, but what he's talking about is healed of the things that are are causing fault and error in us. Paul says that we're to pray for all people. All people. He says we're to pray for kings and those who are in high positions. We're to pray for gospel success around the world. This isn't the place where we come to complain about the government. This is the place where we come to pray for the government, no matter which side of the equation you're on. You can have opinions. I have opinions, strong opinions. That's my wife. Sometimes she wished I would do more praying and less complaining. But we're to pray for the gospel success, even in these high realms. Jesus, you know this, the Lord's Prayer, he told us to pray for God's kingdom to come. He prayed that we, he told us to pray that his will would be done. And not just that it would be done in some esoteric sense. He said to pray that his will would be done on earth, exactly like it's being done in heaven. That is an amazing thought to chew on for a little bit, isn't it? That we would actually pray that the the glory of his kingdom here would look like the glory of his kingdom there. 
It's incredible. He tells us to pray for our daily bread and to pray that we would be forgiven as we are in the act of forgiving others. He said to pray that we wouldn't enter into temptation. So, those are not just individual things that you should be doing. They certainly fall into that category, but there's more to it. So, here at Northridge, we pray during the call to worship. We pray in the middle of our worship service. We pray before we dismiss the kids to the class. We pray before and after the sermon. We pray in thanksgiving after we receive the Lord's Supper. We want for the glory of God to be a prayer-saturated, holy people. Are you on board with that? Listen to what J.C. Ryle said, the great... Uh, British expositor of the 19th century. He said, Faith is to the soul what life is to the body. And prayer is to faith what breath is to the body. How a person can live and not breathe is beyond my comprehension. And how a person can believe and not pray is also past my comprehension. We don't just pray because the Bible tells us to and we gotta. Listen to me. The Bible all through it attaches tremendous promises to those who will pray. I think when I find myself in a prayerless state, and when I come out of that stupor, I go, wow, I've been cutting my own throat. Because listen to some of these promises. Listen, listen to this one. One of my favorites from John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Whew. Now you just pause, please pause and think about that. The one who scatters planets and stars. The one the Bible says that upholds the entire cosmos by the word of his power. That if we ask anything, anything according to his will, he hears us. That the God of the universe will stoop his ear to the words coming out of a stammering a set of lips, a stammering tongue like yours and mine. That should blow your mind. But it goes on. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have desired or asked of him. We must continue to pray in faith. Now, I could talk about that all morning, but we got to move on. The next element of our liturgy has, quite honestly created questions as to its importance. People are like, why are we doing this? And it's the reading of creeds and catechisms and confessions in our services. Now, many of you, I know some of you, grew up in churches that this was the regular practice. You you grew up doing this exactly like we do. But for most of you, because I know most of you, this is entirely foreign to your church experience. Brand new when you came to Northridge. Northridge, uh, more full disclosure, Northridge, Northridge is the first church that 
that I have ever been a part of that consistently looks to these historic summaries of the Christian faith or summaries of particular doctrines and the catechisms that teach us those truths and question and answer form like we did this morning as a part of our regular service order. But just because you and I have not practiced it, it doesn't mean that there's no historic, uh, you know, uh, reason to do it. It doesn't mean that there's no value in it. It doesn't mean that it's just some meaningless addition to our practice. This year, we have focused on the Heidelberg Catechism, as, as Jared said. It dates all the way back to 1563. It's broken into 52 separate Lord's Day readings because it was meant to be read in the church on Sundays for the, over the course of a year for the express purpose of instructing congregations on sound Christian distinctives. Now, you might say, when I say that it happened in 1563, you might say, well, come on, Mark, the the church was already over 1,500 years old when this catechism was written. Can we say that reading it, along with reading confessions and creeds, are mandated in Scripture according to the regulative principle? Now, while we can't say, and we don't say, that there is a specific catechism, creed, or or uh, confession that we're given or commanded by God as a prescription for pleasing worship, we can boldly assert a couple of things. Number one, that there are creedal statements in the New Testament. Did you know that? In fact, there's not just one or two. There's, there's more than 13 creedal statements. The reason I say more than 13, and there's a couple that are disputed, but 13 are not in dispute. 13 times that the, in the, the New Testament writers give us language that was, that was used in their early congregations in a creedal form, that they were like defining what they believed in these statements. And, and they, but not only do we find it, you know, in the New Testament, we see that, that what these things are designed to do is clearly commanded to us by God in His Word as a proper ministry for His church to be engaged in. It, it, the, the simplest uh, reference I can give you to that is Titus. Titus was a pastor. Paul was writing to him. And he, in Titus 2.1 he says, But as for you, pastor, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So throughout the Old Covenant... Fathers were told to teach their children. Priests were commanded to instruct the people. In the New Testament, pastors and elders are tasked with teaching God's truth in the church. And catechisms have been used for centuries to do this systematically. To like, get, instead of trying to explain the entire, you know, uh, length and breadth of the book of Leviticus to you, they are written in question and answer form so that you can understand the meat of what the, the scripture truth is teaching you. So let me just ask you a question. Let me just lay this at your feet. What would you learn? I'm talking about knowledge you do not, uh, you do not have right now. What would you learn if you took that part of the service very, very seriously? Instead of like waiting for it to be done so we can move on to the sermon or whatever, you said, okay, I need to focus on this. I'm, this demands my attention. What if you went home, because you can find thousands of copies of the Heidelberg Catechism online for free. What if you went home and reread our catechism questions weekly online? And, and instead of just kind of reading over it, you looked up all the footnotes, all the verses that are associated with the questions that we asked. Just what if you did that? And let me just ask you bluntly, how would your breadth 
of scriptural knowledge increased if you if you if you uh, added that bit of effort to the catechisms. See, catechisms are perfectly appropriate for te- the teaching function that the church is mandated with. But can I tell you a little secret about catechisms? They're not even best used here. They're best used in the confines of your own home. They're best utilized in your home to familiarize and ground both yourself and your family in solid, unchanging biblical truths. Truthfully, if we were all catechizing ourselves and our kids at home, if we were all familiar and articulate with the doctrinal explanations explained in the catechism, there would be less need to repeat the process here, and there would be a much greater unity of biblical truth in this place. Amen? Y'all still with me? Now, the centerpiece of liturgy in, in almost every church is the sermon that is preached, what I'm doing right now. Considering it in the light of the regulative principle, it's apparent that teaching or preaching is the primary function of the church. Mark says that Jesus, and we talked about this in our series in Mark, Mark says that Jesus placed a priority on the verbally, on verbally proclaiming the gospel. He put a greater priority on that than working miracles, signs, and wonders. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. There's something in the powerful communication of the word that, that brings life when it happens. Jesus, uh, God said it in the uh, Old Testament, my word does not return to me empty. The Bible talks about the New Testament like a two-edged sword. There is a power and a sufficiency in the word. In our text that Landy read to us this morning, Paul uh, he emphasizes the preeminence of gospel proclamation in God's redemptive plan for the world. He says, remember he said this, he said, the word of the cross, that's preaching, the preached, proclaimed word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Those that are outside of Christ, they don't just, they they don't tolerate preaching, they hate it. They find it boring, irrelevant. They find it, you know, meaningless. They find it um, something to uh, to academically, in arrogance, pick apart. But those of us who have heard the call, the inward effectual call of the Holy Spirit, recognize that what is preached represents the power of God. Paul says this in another way, in another place. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God unto salvation. You want to see the power of God? Do you want to? You want to see the power of God? Preach the gospel. Listen to the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Immerse yourself in the gospel. To preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And your life will be filled with the power of God. Maybe not in signs, wonders, or miracles, but it'll be filled with the power of God into salvation, transformation, sanctification, growing more and more into the image of Christ. And brothers and sisters, isn't that what you want? God chooses, through verses like this, to communicate through words, not experiences. Let's go deeper into that passage. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. 
That means all the, the science separated from God. Science is a great tool in the hands of a believer. But all the science separated from God gives you the most perverse and, and, and odd conclusions that human beings have ever come to. Wisdom without God, that the, that the world cannot find God through wisdom, through scientific study or academic study. But he says this, he says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. People go, <laughs> dead savior, crucified criminal. And we're saying, yes, it's the power of God to our salvation. And Paul says it's that foolish message that saves those who believe. For the Jews of his time, they say they demand signs. They want to see something spectacular. And the Jew and the Greeks want wisdom. They want to just kind of uh, ponder their navels endlessly. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to those Jews. A folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is here it is again, is the power of God. And he is the wisdom of God. In direct opposition to a world that demands spectacle and imagery, it pleases God to silence their so-called signs and their so-called wisdom with the simple declaration of truth, unembellished and unfiltered by human ingenuity. When we compromise... By adding innovations to the gospel, to the simple preaching of it. Whether we're adding slickly produced elements, drama, lighting, just some level of sensationalism. How many of you guys have seen the YouTube video of the pastor who's preaching about the second coming of Christ and he hooks himself up to a harness, you know, two stories above the congregation, he just kind of gently floats down. And, and what that happens when people do that, that makes me less interested in the, in the second coming of Christ than I was to begin with. It doesn't make me go, ooh, I hope it looks like I'm getting a wedgie when I go up to, to heaven. That is not, that's not what happened. It doesn't, it doesn't compel my heart. But when the word of God is preached about a Christ who is coming, who will renew all of creation and raise the dead to his glory, I get excited about that. But we can also compromise the gospel by removing all of the sting of its truth. I talked about this last week. We just want to be relevant. I don't want to rock the boat. And when we take the sting of truth out of it, it results in our preaching being nothing more than Dear Abby columns. Nothing more than TED Talks. Because we're denying the sufficiency of the gospel as it's been given to us. And so what is, what are we to do? Not me as a preacher alone, but you as a congregation. We must believe that the word preached without being retouched, without being spruced up by us, is fully able to convert sinners to Christ. It must be preached boldly and unapologetically. We don't skip over the controversial parts, but we trust that everything to be known about God's salvation is found in the, within the pages of this book and nowhere else. Only a pastor or teacher that is committed to God's written objective word will be pleasing to Christ.
Paul knew this when he said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. See, we said this last week, but fads and trends, they change with each passing moment. But the word of God, the written, infallible, inerrant word of God has withstood the raging of tyrants. The written, infallible, objective word of God has withstood periods of great apathy and indifference even in the church. It has survived the criticism of academics. It survived every shift of of popular culture. Jesus himself declared, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, how should we listen to preaching? Should we listen to it apathetically or attentively? Should we listen to it casually or with great concentration? Should we listen to it defensive of every pinch the gospel subjects us to? Or earnestly meditating on how to apply the truths that we're hearing preached, how we should apply those truths obediently. What if you, like we said last week, an act of repentance today, what if you conditioned yourself, began to condition yourself to hear well by coming to this church carrying the word of God? Bringing your Bible. I see Mike there with his Bible right now. He's making sure that I'm not preaching anything off the record. Right, Mike? Am I doing okay so far? So, all right. Um, whew, that was good. I was getting scared. But what if you conditioned to hear well by bringing your Bible to church and actually reading along with the text? What if you took notes so that when the Lord prompted something in you from what you were hearing, you could write it down so that on Tuesday, when you're in the thick of the week, you could look back and remember it. No, by the way, can I just make it? This isn't in my notes, but let me just kind of make a comment about notes. Some people like try to duplicate my outline. Don't do that. If you want my outline, I'll just give it to you. That's easy. And then you won't have to write notes. Here's what I want you to do when you open up your notebook and pull out your pen. I want you to be listening for the voice of the Spirit through the Word of God to touch personal things in you and write those things down. So we don't forget them. If we we don't write them down, we forget them. We move on with our week. But that's how you take notes in church. You're listening. You're not trying to duplicate what I've already written. I'll save you that work. But write down what the the Lord is speaking to you through the preaching of his word. And so you can review it and and remember it. What if you left your phone in the car so you wouldn't be distracted during the service? When Paul preached in the little city of Berea, we're told this incredible thought that Luke, the author of Acts, just kind of pinned in there. Acts 17, verse 11, it says, Now these Jews, the ones in Berea, these Jews were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Now think about this. Thessalonica got two letters from Paul. That's that's part of Scripture. We have nothing like that from Berea. But, but Luke says these guys were better than those guys. The guys in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. Why? Here's why. They received the word with all eagerness. When you walk out of here today, you get in your car, you go to lunch, you go home, whatever you go do, will you be able to say, I received the word 
with all eagerness. I couldn't wait for more. I was so hungry for it. I was, I was salivating for the word of God. But, but he doesn't even stop there. There's one more step to this. They received the word with all eagerness and then it says, they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things, what things? The things that Paul, the apostle, was telling them to see if they were so. Alright, I'm gonna lay all, I'm gonna be very vulnerable now. Lay myself right on the altar for you to drive a knife in my heart. <sighs> Do you ever disagree with something I've said from up here? Everyone's like, no, never. Liars. <laughs> Do you ever disagree with something I said? See, I'm diverting my gaze because I just can't, I'm too fragile. I can't take it. Do you ever disagree with something I've said? Well, listen to me. Great. I love it. Fantastic. I'm proud of you for thinking critically and coming to those conclusions. But if that's the case, I dare you. When I say something, I don't know about that. I dare you. Go home. Go into your Bible. Do all the heavy lifting, the diligent work necessary until you can either from Scripture prove me wrong or we, you and I can walk in a new level of agreement. Do it. If every sermon that I preach from this pulpit pushed you to study your Bibles like the Bereans, I call that a win. And I call that a win even if from time to time I had to say, uh, to take ownership of some things I didn't get quite right. I'm serious. Challenge. Hope you're accepting the challenge. Try these things by the scripture. One of the most beautiful doctrines in the new covenant is the priesthood of all believers. And if you're not familiar with that, it just means that we need no mediator but Christ. Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. You don't need uh, some Dalai Lama. You don't need anything. You have direct access to, to God, the Father, through Christ. And that all of us, because of this priesthood of believers, all of us have access to him through his word. But what I would criticize about modern American evangelicalism is that most of us still prefer a priest in the form of a pastor, in the form of our favorite teacher. And so, (coughs) excuse me, we miss all of the benefits of this priesthood that God has set us into. We miss all of it. And it reminds me of in, in Mount Sinai when the people were trembling before the mountain and they said, Moses, you talk to us. Do not let God talk to us. You talk to us, God. And now that that scary smoking mountain, that wall of separation between us has been broken by the cross and we're still saying, I ain't got time for that. Mark, you talk to us. Jared, David, Gabriel, you teach us. And I hope that's not true here. I'm just saying that's a that's a kind of a thing that's all across the body of Christ right now. People will say, you know, John Piper said, they'll say, you know, R.C. Sproul said, which great, love both of those guys. But what I want to, what, what encourages me when you come to me after service, before service, on Wednesday night, whatever, and you say, I found this in the Word. I'm going I'm to embarrass him. I love meeting with Paco. Uh, Paco and he and I will have coffee sometimes. And co- as soon as we kind of exchange pleasantry, Paco flops open his Bible and he says, I have questions. And, and, and sometimes I found that Paco doesn't have questions. He has answers. 
And so I prefer, I, I like that. So, um, cause, cause I, he's telling me something. I go, I, I don't know, you know, so, um, and I love that. And so that is so refreshing to my soul. I, I just want to encourage you all to take that kind of leap towards the truth of God's word. All of our services end with a gathering around the Lord's table for his supper. And this is often called communion because we're communing in that moment, both with the risen Christ, through a mysterious operation of the Holy Spirit, and we're also communing with other saints in the body. It's an opportunity to renew our covenant. Now, when we say renew our covenant, we use that language a lot. We're not saying because somehow the the, uh, the covenant failed. We're not saying because somehow you outsend the covenant. But because we're so easily distracted and we wrestle with so much remaining indwelling sin throughout the week, if we're honest, what, what this covenant renewal moment means is we get to go, oh yeah, that's what he's done. Oh yeah, that's who I am in Christ. Oh yeah, this is, this is how I am connected to the risen body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yeah. So from from here on out, when you come to the table, go, oh, yeah, I get it now. I remember. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about covenant renewal. The uh, at, at Northridge Life Church, you, you've noticed this if you've been here even two weeks. We do this every single week. Other churches do it less frequently, quarterly, monthly, and that's okay. But because of the benefits, we'd rather do it as often as possible. Um, the frequency of observance, however, isn't as important as the heart attitude with which you observe. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, just right after the verses that I read every, almost every Sunday, says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, three of the four Gospels and the book of 1 Corinthians here make it clear that partaking of the Lord's Supper is perfectly in line with the regulative principle. But I wonder if we come to the table thoughtful and prepared for such a moment, or we've satisfied in our minds whether this is biblical or not, so we don't think about it anymore. Well, sometimes when you read those verses I just read from 1 Corinthians 11, it causes some little little heartburn to rise, and you're like, oh my goodness, am I taking the, the, the supper unworthily? I want to make clear that you understand what Paul is teaching here. Paul is not teaching that you should not come unless you find yourself in sinless perfection, because what would happen then? Come on, help me out. What would happen then? Nobody would come. That would be impossible for us to come in sinless perfection. So I'm pretty sure Paul is saying that we shouldn't come hastily, arrogantly, selfishly, in a spirit of entitlement, and unaware of our desperate need for the grace that's offered here. We should come to this table every week thoughtfully. Derek Thomas encourages us to be conscious of what he calls all the directions of the supper. He doesn't mean instructions. He means the directions of the supper. He says, we come to the supper looking backward. When we come to the supper, we look at the cross. And gazing upon the cross, we feel our sins and simultaneously rejoice in the atonement offered by the Lamb. 
When we come to the table, we look upward where Christ's ascended body is right now, the same ascended body that, that the Holy Spirit is going to unite us with. We come to the table and we look forward. In the proclamation of the words of institution every week, I say, so when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. How long? Until he comes. We're looking forward to that glorious moment. But also, when we come to the table, we look around. We say, we look at the other faces, people with the same struggles, the same pains, the same heartaches, and we go, oh yeah, there it is again. We're a body. I'm not coming here as some individual Christian getting my business right with God. I am coming as part of a body a larger organism that comprises the body of Christ all over the world. I'm a part of a building where Christ sits immovably as the chief cornerstone. And all these people are lively stones in that building with me. And with all this in mind, we should also come joyfully. Sometimes I, I have a little consternation at the at the community service because it's so somber. And, and there's... There is a time for thoughtful reflection, but man, this is your declaration of forgiveness. It's your declaration of unity with Christ. Why wouldn't we come joyfully? It's great. Lastly, and I said it, lastly, our services always end with a benediction. Simply means a blessing. We always try to select a final scriptural blessing in line with the gospel message that's just been preached. And the question, so, in, in keeping with our theme, is this practice in line with the regulative principle? Well, if you turn all the way almost to the beginning of the Bible, in fact, look this up right now, Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, get there quick. <coughs> you go near the end of the chapter to verse 22, this is what we read. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, the high priest, and his sons, the priests, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. And you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Aaron was commanded to bless the people of God. And and I love this. In the end, it says that this blessing put the name of God upon them. Now, can I just be honest with you? This is one time when you can go and be a Berean and figure me out. I don't understand the depth of all that means. I just don't. But I like it. I like it a lot. I like the idea of the name of God being put on me. But this verse is one of the reasons here, the scriptural reason, that our benediction is always concluded with the Trinitarian blessing. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen. See, with the Gloria Patri at the beginning of our service, and this Trinitarian blessing at the end of our service, we ensure that every gathering starts and finishes on the same heart of giving glory to the triune God. Now, We're done, but I hope I've made two points clear over the last couple of weeks. Number one, to the best of our understanding, fallible as we are, we have a biblical basis for what we do here at Northridge Life Church. Secondly, each element of our services in and of itself is biblical. 
But there's one more question to be asked and answered, and it is this. <clears throat> you might say, gotcha, I'm all, all on board. It's all biblical. But the question you need to ask yourself is, what is the benefit of such a liturgy to you, the congregation? Well, our praying, our reading of Scripture, our preaching, our receiving the sacraments is a way that we receive grace. Throughout church history, these things, which have been, it seemed to us, if we're honest, so mundane at times, have been called the ordinary means of grace. And it means that they're the primary instruments through which God communicates or grants grace to us. Now, I'm not saying that there's something salvific about taking a cup of wine or there's something salvific in singing a song or listening to a sermon. What I'm saying is that it is, you can, on each of our elements, it is through preaching that people are, believe and they're saved. That is the communication of grace. It's through praying that God becomes real and close and intimate to us. That is the communication of grace. <clears throat> it's through the ministry of the word that he communicates to us his eternal wisdom. That's the communication of grace. It's through the connection to his risen body through the sacraments, that, the, or it's through the sacraments that we have uh, union with his risen body. That is a communication of grace. And it's through these things that God most commonly meets us, instructs us, renews us, transforms us, and propels us. Not ordinary, ordinary, not extraordinary means of grace. But many people spend their entire lives diligently searching for the next big thing, the dramatic move of God, the Azusa Street, the Asbury, the revival down the road, the dynamic preacher who is the YouTube sensation of the month. And these kinds of people, if you settle into that routine, you're always devouring, always devouring, but you never get full. Paul or Peter told us to, like newborn infants, to desire the sincere milk of the word. It's the word. The writer of Hebrews says, you should be ready for meat right now. But you're not. You're just ready for milk. For these kind of people, they devour, they're never full, and every meal for them has to be Thanksgiving dinner. It can't just be a nutritious, well-balanced meal. But real spiritual growth does not come from, and I'll die on this hill, from chasing the glory cloud. Real spiritual growth comes from faithful persistence, the one who is diligent and more concerned with growing in the knowledge of God than seeing wonders, whose desire is to be found faithful, not to be constantly blown away, who would rather be about the Father's business then dwell peacefully in the cool breezes on top of the mountaintop. And may God raise up many of that bloodline right here at Northridge Life Church. Amen. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, only you can give us what prayer, what the word, what the sacraments give us. And also, Lord, only you can convince us of the necessity and the reality of the power of these things. And so, Lord, I pray that you would 
turn our attention away from the cravings that we have for, like the Israelites when they craved quail and leeks and onions and things that they had in Egypt. Lord, help us to to deny those cravings and be satisfied with bread from heaven. Because you said, I, Jesus, you said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And I give myself to, the, to all the, to the life of the world so that all that the Father comes can, the calls can come and feast on me. Lord, I, I pray that you would indwell or, or instill in us a hunger for that bread, to be nourished by that. So Lord, I just pray that you would just correct us, conform us, chastise us if necessary, but Lord, help us to appreciate the revival that happens every time we meet you in your word. The revival that happens every time we pray in faith. The revival that happens every time we give our diligent, eager attention to the word preached. The, the revival that happens every time we come to this table in faith. The grace is available here. So Lord, do, do your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I could have our communion workers come and join us at the front. Um, I want to, um, I'm not going to say a lot because I, I had the portion of the message where I talked about this. I just want to remind you as you come, come worthy. If you are in rebellion to God right now, if you have not made yourself, if you have not submitted yourself to the call of the Holy Spirit to be a follower of Christ, just stay there. We're not going to put a spotlight on you or anything. Just stay in your seat. And let's let's talk. We are praying for you. We pray for you every service that you would come to know Christ and the freedom and liberty that he offers. Um, but, but for now, don't put yourself in the position of taking this cup unworthily. For the rest of you, come, receive these elements, and remember the directions. Look backward at the cross. Look uh, upward to the risen, resurrected Lord. Look forward to, to his return and look around you. You're not alone. You're not isolated. There's a body of Christ that is here with you, desperately in need of grace, just like you. Desperately loved by a Savior, just like you. And that gives me great confidence and peace. Amen. So if you would come receive the elements and then we'll go back to our, our seats and take them together in a moment. Paul writes for us previous to the passage I read to you in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also... He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, can we give thanks? Lord, we thank you for your indescribable gift. We thank you for the freedom and liberty that it has purchased for us. We thank you for the promise of sanctification and resurrection that it gives for us, Lord. God, we pray that you would make us through a work of your redemption and the work of your, the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit and the election of the Father. We pray that you would make us saints, Lord, who are pleasing worshipers to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to speak this benediction over you. It should give you a lot of comfort. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.